What's up? Welcome back to the Keeping Stock Sneaker Podcast. And this week, we have Nike stories. Rarely do you meet someone as genuine and authentic as our guest today. It was amazing to hear the perspective of someone who grew up during Jordan's second three-peat and saw the rise of sneakers firsthand, not only through retail, but through social media. Drew tells a variety of stories, and I was completely in awe the whole time. Funny enough, right before this episode, his Instagram account led me to the Jumpman Pro Strong, which I had never known the name of the sneaker because I had won it at Jordan's flight school in Santa Barbara and he sent it to the house and I never knew the name of it until now. And that's what Nike Stories provides, great insight to the past, present, and future. So without further ado, listen to the interview with Drew Hamill of Nike Stories. Hailing from South Jersey with an insatiable passion for Nike, today's guest has written for Finish Line, East Bay, High Snobiety, Jordan Brand, and more. He's not only a leader in his local community, but also a mentor for over 100,000 individuals online. Further, he has leveraged his enthusiasm into a lifetime of priceless memories with his digital vault to Nike's past. Please welcome to the show, the founder of Nike Stories, Mr. Drew Hamill. Drew, how are you doing? Fine, Julian. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. I actually recently, from your Instagram, found out the name of a shoe that I was, I won at a Jordan camp when I was little um, that brought back instant memories. So I, I've already learned a, a ton from being on Nike Stories and finally seeing one that directly related to an experience I had. I felt like the other hundreds of thousands that have came to you. Well, that's good to hear. That's probably the main goal of my account is to educate people and kind of create an archive where people can dig and learn and find out some info about some of their favorite shoes that they might have forgotten about from their past. I would be amiss as you've cataloged Nike's past. We're currently in the post last dance era, so to speak. What was your experience like with the last dance documentary over the 10 episodes? Yeah, it was everything I was hoping it would be. Definitely a thorough history of the Chicago Bulls team. There was not a ton of new information for me because I've read a ton about the team and growing up in the 90s. I was a teenager and very influenced by the Bulls, Jordan Pippen and Rodman. So I was obsessed with them and and watched them as much as I could and read about them as much as I could. So it was just a nice reminder of how amazing and influential they were during that time period. And I think it was very well done and showed a lot of different perspectives, even down to like the music was really good um, and engaging. All the stories that they told were excellent and fun. And I'm always trying to learn new things. So I definitely uh, learned a few new tidbits as well. So definitely an enjoyable experience. I would have to agree with that small detail about the music I thought was spot on. You know, I wasn't necessarily, uh, I was alive, but wasn't alive in the same way. I was just a baby, but it felt captivating and I felt the emotion throughout the documentary. But from someone of your background who knows a lot of those stories, did you feel that those were expressed in the right way or do you wish they would have gone down any more detailed paths with some of the stories or did you feel it covered everything in in the right light. I feel like it was fairly accurate. The first few episodes, they were painting Jordan in a pretty angelic light, which I was like, wait, are they going to talk about his 
speckled past it all here. He's no, he's no angel. And, and they did. They talked about some of the issues that he had, especially with gambling. And certainly some of the voices were not there. Like, I don't think Jordan, Jordan's wife, first wife, Juanita, mm-hmm. was interviewed at all. And Jerry Krause, of course, passed a few years ago, so he couldn't speak for himself. And they definitely painted him in a pretty negative light there which I think is fair from everything I've read and remember, but also Jordan and Pippen and Rodman weren't that, they weren't the best guys either. So (laughs) they had big egos and as they should, they were the best players in the league. So I think it took a lot of talent on Jerry's end to actually keep them together as well. So which you didn't really see that side of it overall though. I think it was pretty accurate. I think that's fair to say as I, the Jerry Krause thing, the first two episodes seemed a little harsh in some regards, and I can see the vantage point, you know, from the athletes. And it was just interesting not to be able to hear his side of the story in some of those regards, but it seemed as they progressed, it lightened up a little bit. And, you know, we got into some of those other details outside of making Jordan so, yeah, angelic. And I mean, he was a, a very large figure at the time. Was there any certain moments during the documentary of either apparel or ads or sneakers that just popped out to you and kind of put you back into that that feeling of being a teenager at that time? Definitely the entire final season that when they won their sixth championship, seeing Jordan wear those shoes, the 13s, and then the 14s at the very end there, which he wore, I think, for two games. Of course, during the last shot, he was wearing the 14s. And I remember being a kid, we didn't have cable. So we just had a TV with an antenna and the screen was pretty blurry during that game. And I was just trying to see what he was wearing. Like, wait, those are not 13s, are they? They look strange. <laughs> and nobody knew because there was no social media. So I don't think I ever found out until a few months later about what he was actually wearing there. And it was the new Jordan. So that was a really cool moment, obviously, growing up, and I, I'll never forget that. Also, the the very first episode when they showed Jordan open the bag, and he has his airships, and then he takes out the, the Air Jordan, he's like, this is what, you, what everybody wants to see or something. I thought that was a pretty cool moment, too. I'd never seen that footage before. So definitely, I'd say the, the first shoes that he wore, the, the airship and the Jordan one, and then that, that final moment with the 14 uh, were pretty cool for me. A lot of that background footage was in this the sounds to maybe some of the iconic photos were a great experience for me and my girlfriend while we watched. And I have to ask you, Drew, I've seen on social media recently that Jordan played a half size bigger or smaller in one of the shoes. Is that a story you've heard or seen in your time going through, you know, Nike's past? Yeah, the account Big Bo Strong. He talks about that a lot because he owns a lot of those actual shoes that Jordan has. And they actually mention him in the credits for The Last Dance. So I don't know what his role was with ESPN, but he certainly contributed in some way to the the storytelling and information. And so he definitely wore a half size different on one foot. I'd have to look through and look look back at Big Bo's uh, posts, but he definitely talks about that. And you kind of touched base on on the airship, which, you know, recently released, and I saw that you were, you know, lucky enough to get your hands on. Do you feel 
the timing and the packaging and that sneaker as a whole was kind of up to the hype that it's slowly built up since MJO23Dan kind of started his petition and brought that to light. Do you feel that, you know, the airship has kind of gotten its its due due diligence? Yeah, I mean, there was a bunch of us back in 20, what was it, 2013, 2014, we were all kind of starting around the same time, posting pictures of Jordan and posting whatever we could find that's rare and that you didn't see before. So I think we were all aware of the airship and knew that it had not ever retroed before. So there was plenty of interest and intrigue about this shoe. And then I think the way Jordan Brand and Nike presented it with the New Beginnings pack was very well done. Excellent marketing. Give it out to a few folks who are serious collectors, I think was a, was a great move to really get the hype going. And then to not really release that many pairs obviously is going to create more hype for this shoe because when you look at it, it's just a basic white basketball shoe with a red swoosh. You know, right. that special. However, having it and wearing it now, I can see that it's actually super comfortable, great cushioning, great padding. And it's it's certainly a piece of history with Jordan wearing it before he was wearing the Air Jordan 1. I think Nike and Jordan brand just got lucky with this whole pandemic. Everything shut down and ESPN moved up the last dance. So now everyone's at home watching Michael Jordan Sunday nights and watching what he's wearing and Googling it and checking Instagram. And as I'm sure you're aware, the prices for these shoes, all the Jordan shoes have, have skyrocketed over the last two months, even though we're in this crazy pandemic where we have 30 million unemployed in the last two months alone in the U.S., people are still paying even more for shoes now than they did several months ago, which is fascinating to me. It is absurd to see some of the increases in those aftermarket values. And I have a pair of the 2015 Chicago's and I love wearing them. And I wasn't fully aware that, you know, those price jumps were happening until being at a store and someone else saying, hey, those are really cool shoes. I remember watching Jordan playing them. And to me, that value of connecting that memory with someone else felt awesome. And even though these shoes are going for 1500 or $1,700, like just being able to give that experience from a pair of shoes that I owned felt phenomenal. I don't know if I could ever come to selling my shoes for that right. price, but I imagine that's how many people who are trying to purchase the shoes and are purchasing at that price are feeling that nostalgia with them. They are, and they have a stimulus check. <laughs> so they're like, heck, I just made $1,200 or whatever. I can buy those Jordan ones. No problem. I think that's part of it too. But yeah, you want to buy a shoe that, you, that, that has an intrinsic value, that has a personal meaning to you, a shoe you might have missed out on as a kid. That's how it's been for years now. That's why I have been collecting seriously for a good 10 years is because I didn't have a chance to buy the shoes that I wanted as a kid because we didn't have a lot of money. So I had to buy Reebok Blacktops and Converse Running Slams. And the kids with more money got to got to wear the Air Jordans. And I was jealous of them. And I never forgot those shoes. And the fact that Jordan and Nike are bringing back all these models from our childhood is genius on their part. Yeah, we just want to relive our in this innocent years as, you know, as kids. Would you say in that comparison, right? as a child growing up, wanting to obtain those Nike Air Jordan sneakers, 
or another professional player's sneakers and seeing other students or friends have them is kind of what drove you a little bit further into the passion behind Nike and sneakers and footwear and the stories? Yeah, I would absolutely say that. Although I would say for whatever reason, I've always been fascinated with sneakers. I could not tell you why. But I do remember starting in elementary school, just seeing kids with, this is the early 90s, kids with Agassiz, Bo Jackson's, Jordans, and just being fascinated by them because just the, the quality and the colors and the designs were just so much better than the, you know, the shoes I was wearing and, and I had to have them in the fact that I couldn't. Yes, most people, they forget about that stuff. But for me, I don't know. It was just perfect timing because Jordan was in his prime as well. And so was Agassi. So was Ken Griffey Jr. and Deion Sanders. And I was watching all these incredible athletes on TV, in commercials, reading about them in Sports Illustrated. And then I had to have their shoes too. So it wasn't until high school when I was able to work at the athlete's foot and Foot Locker and start making some money and got discounts on sneakers where I was able to start getting some of the shoes that I wanted. And then you would think that passion would kind of die down as it does for most adults, but it never has. <laughs> it's just something I still love. And that's one thing I've counted my blessings for is being able to remember the tail end of Nike's advertising in Wyden Kennedy before we went social media. And, you know, for me, the big ads were the LeBrons, what Kobe was doing in Nike basketball. But when you look back at your time with Agassi and Griffey and Jordan, are there any ad campaigns or commercials that stood out to you or you remember from your childhood or teen years? All the Jordan commercials were great, but I would say they, they were kind of funny with his Mars Blackman and Hair Jordan years. Mm -hmm. And then they turned more serious when he came back. But they turn a little more inspirational with like the slow motion one with the Air Jordan 12 when he's uh, getting the ball versus the Lakers. And then there's the I have failed over and over and over again commercial. And the, I was an impressionable 15, 16 year old. So those were just I was like, oh, my God, these are amazing. So definitely those. And then for for print ads, definitely the the phone ads. From 95 to 97, there was about at least 80 different sneakers featured over two years with a phone number on the bottom, just a, a white background and a, a gorgeous shot of the shoe with a red swoosh. And I've written countless articles on those ads right. and still trying to track all of them down because you, you see a new one every year because they weren't just in the US, they were overseas too and, and specific for overseas print magazines. So those are some of the great campaigns. Agassi had many great campaigns as well. Some amazing commercials, Ken Griffey Jr., Deion Sanders. Nike could really do no, no wrong back then with <laughs> their ads and their commercials. And because you didn't have social media, we were all, instead of being glued to your phone all day, you were glued to the TV set. And I didn't, I wasn't allowed to play video games growing up. So I had no, I could either go outside and play sports or I could stay inside and watch TV and watch sports. So those were the only two things I was doing. Or I could sit in uh, Sports Illustrated's or my East Bay catalogs. Print media being so big back then and influential. And as you mentioned numerous times so far, no internet, no social media, could only really order from going to the store or the online catalog. Do you remember 
your first encounter with East Bay? It's got to be eighth grade. I was in the cafeteria and my buddy Aziz, who I'm still very good friends with, brings in this catalog and he's like, you got to check this out and shows me this catalog full of sneakers and jerseys and workout gear. And this was back in, I think, 95 when they would show like Penny Hardaway a picture of him but they had to like paint over his jersey because they didn't have the right to like the magic logo so it was a really pretty ghetto catalog back then but they had every single shoe you could want great pictures of them descriptions little stories about each shoe and for whatever reason I started collecting them not really thinking that far ahead into the future but I just wanted to, I couldn't have the shoes. So I figured I might as well hold on to these catalogs. So I at least had pictures of them. Thank God my mom kept them in boxes for how long has it been? Man, 20 years. She kept them in the attic and then handed them to me back in, I think it was 2013, 2014, when Instagram was taking off. And she's just like, I'm cleaning out the attic here. Do you want these or not? <laughs> kept all these. So she was sitting on a gold mine there. And those catalogs have really helped my account grow and taught me a lot and obviously taught a lot of other people a ton of information. That's how I originally came across Nike Stories was, I think it was a, an East Bay catalog photo that had many liked and commented on in some regards. And I think another one I had seen Nike Stories through was an Air Monarch that happened to go viral oh, yeah. or something of that nature and like i want to say it was like 2014 or yeah. 15 i may have saw that yeah it's pretty early i was just trying to be creative with the account and post things that were either silly or interesting or so the monarch was both silly and and interesting because it had a full-length airbag in it the same as the air jordan 11 but you can get them for you know 50 55 dollars and, you know, there was some other accounts kind of making fun of the Monarch, which I thought was funny. So I just put one on in a DSW or something and took a picture of it and just posted, did you know this and that about the Air Monarch? Somehow complex sneakers saw it and reposted it. <laughs> At that point, I only had like maybe three or 400 followers and it blew up to over a thousand that night. <laughs> it was pretty awesome. <laughs> I still got like got notifications on my screen at that point. So it was just like, a yeah. of I'm like, oh my God, I made it. <laughs> that was a really fun moment. And I screenshotted that post from when Complex Sneakers posted it and still have it on my phone. You kind of talked about, right, being at DSW and those were the Monarchs were selling. If we take it back to, you mentioned earlier working at Athlete's Foot and Foot Locker, and it seemed to be at that point in time in the 90s, a lot of independent shoe stores or local shoe stores. Is there anything from that era of sneakers at the time that you miss from the having those independent stores or those more local commodities? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So that was actually quite a turning point in the late 90s because you had these franchises like the Athlete's Foot, which were still very mom and pop. There was a, a manager who ran the business and could pick the product himself, what he wanted to sell. And they counted on customer service big time. And in fact, in my opinion, too much. So I actually had a lot of friction with my boss because we didn't sell a lot of Jordans and we mostly sold just walking shoes, like the Nike Air quintessential. And he's like, go, go talk to that person. I'm like, 
we don't sell anything good here. They're not going to buy anything. <laughs> so there was that, but then there was the flashy footlockers, which back in the late nineties, they, they put a lot of money into renovating old Woolworth stores. You know, Woolworth's own footlocker, I think is how it worked. So footlockers would take over these massive spaces and renovate them into very flashy sh- stores with light shows and big screens. That was kind of the beginning of flashy shoe stores. So the athlete's foot went out of business, the one I worked at, so because they weren't selling much. So I went over to the Foot Locker and got a job there like two weeks later and was part of that new wave of flashiness where you didn't have to do as much customer service because Foot Locker had the product too. They had, everybody was buying Timberlands back then. This was like 98, 99, 2000. So everyone was buying Jordans and Air Force Ones and Air Max Plus running shoes. So they kind of sold themselves for the most part, but you still had to like lace the shoes up and, right. and you know, help the customers out. So yeah, Foot Locker was that new wave. And then the internet was beginning as well. And people were starting to buy online, but for shoes, definitely not. In the early 2000s, everyone was still, for the most part, going into a store and trying them on for themselves. So there was no such thing. Nobody ever said dead stock or I'd never heard that until like 2010, you know. So, yeah, it was definitely a different time back then. And as one former Foot Locker employee to the other, my store at the time had the arena set up. It was super old. This was, I mean, 2015 they still had the lights and we had the monitors playing music videos and carpet so it's like one of the oldest ones in the region but i have to ask you drew do you remember what your first purchase on discount was from Foot Locker? oh man it would have to be i got the air max pluses pretty early on and i got the air zoom gp gary payton oh nice too. that was on sale heavily discounted i i talked about that on a um, complex YouTube video I did a few weeks ago. The AirZoom GP I probably got for like 40, 50 bucks. And it's my one of my favorite basketball shoes to play in because it's got the heel and forefoot zoom air in it. I was still pretty poor back then. Though, so I didn't buy a yeah. lot, even, you know, even though I was working. So it was only a few. So it had to be the Air Max Plus and the AirZoom GP. Those were probably the first two I got on discount there. And you could get Jordans though, probably 30% off. So I went off to Mm -hmm. college in 2000 to Rutgers and the Air Jordan 11 Concord came back out its first time retroing. And my buddy still worked at the Foot Locker that I worked at after, after I left for college and he was able to hold me a pair. And I think they retailed for like 120, 125 and they got me 30% off that. And I still have those in my possession. And at that time when you go off to college and it's the early 2000s. And I'd say sneaker culture is still very niche at that point in time. What drove you to hold on to those Concords from 2000? I'm sure you wore them and you you had some good times in them, but what drove you to say, I need to, to hang on to these? I wore them a lot to the gym, played a lot of basketball in them, just kept them in a a bin full of other sneakers for years. And I'm trying to, yeah, trying to remember how this all worked, but it was probably around when social media was really kicking off around 2011, 2012. I was going to get rid of the the Concords just because they were old and really beat up. And then I took them out for one more spin in New York. I was working 
and I, I was on my lunch break and I wore them into a foot foot action and it was like rainy out too, but I didn't care. And I noticed people looking at my feet and I was kind of embarrassed, like, oh man, they're looking at these beaters and everyone has nice fresh shoes on. And one guy who worked there was like, uh, what year are those? <laughs> like 2000. He's like, holy crap, you still have them? He's like, they look so nice. He's like, you know how much those are worth? I'm like, no, I have no idea how much <laughs> So that I think I did some research and realized, whoa, I, I better keep these. Don't get rid of them. I took them to a, a sneaker, no, a, a shoe store, like a shoe repair shop and just had them clean them up for me and shine the patent leather and stuff and made them look nice. And then I just, yeah, kept them. And I still had my AirZoom GPs and my Air Max Pluses and a few other shoes in an old bin, decided to clean them up a bit and just started following accounts on Instagram at that point and really reading a lot on Nice Kicks and uh, Soul Collector, Hypebeast, those websites and just learning as much as I could and decided, oh, this is really fun and exciting and I have some interesting content myself, so maybe I should should get in on the fun here. It's great that your mom decided to keep all of those old East Bay magazines and for you to reflect on those and bring them over to social media. And if we take a step behind the veil a little bit of Nike stories. Are you the the only one who is finding content for the account and posting? Or do you have a couple of friends that help you out? How is that the background working? It's completely my account. I've even thought about bringing other people on because it is hard to keep up, especially when it's not my job. It's just a hobby. So I'm only doing it in my spare time. The big, I guess the bigger you get, in Instagram, the more people reach out to you and send you stuff. And I've just been doing it for so long now that I know who to follow. And I'm always looking for new pictures and images and people to follow, which also the last dance has brought a lot of people out, <laughs> out of the woodwork uh, with some pretty cool stuff. So it's just endless content. But I'm always going through my, my East Bays and my Slam magazines and Sports Illustrators to find stuff that I might have overlooked in the past. And I just really do try to keep it authentic and real and, and different because the goal is just to, is to educate. It's just endless. I could talk about sneakers. I could <laughs> talk about Nike. I've been doing it for six or seven years now on social media. I could do it for another six or seven years, no problem. But for sure, there's other good accounts out there. The OG support group is awesome. And this guy, Good Burger, is amazing. He's bringing, he's posting like 10 to 20 images every day. So there's definitely people I go to and, and speak with on a daily basis. And as you know, I'm, I'm doing my top 50 favorite sneakers right now. So I'm kind of taking a break from posting anything else besides that. Before we jump into the 50 sneakers that have made some people upset by not understanding the concept behind it, have any companies tried to encroach and purchase Nike stories from you or try to come in and influence or sponsor in some regards? Funnily enough, a guy who ran an athlete's foot somewhere else in the country, I won't say where, offered to buy my account for $10,000 when I had about 25,000 followers. And I said, that's too low. How about a dollar per follower? So 25,000. And he said, no. Mm. So that was years ago and no one has made an offer since then. So no one's offered to like buy the account or anything like that. And as far as like influencing it, not really. 
Um, obviously, Nike and Jordan Brand and Converse reach out to me if they want to if they want me to promote something for them, which I always happily do because for many reasons. But I love they send me shoes, and I that's the best thing. So I'm happy to promote for them. Um, other than that, not really. I think because I really keep it real and I say on my mind, I'm I'm not going to really change it to make it something else than what it is at this point. And that's respectable. I think it's awesome to see that others have noticed the the passion and the enthusiasm and how you've kept it in your own voice over this time. Further to your point, I mean, you've done this out of your free time, the side hustle, so to speak, and it's rewarded you with countless memories and sneakers throughout this time. Did you ever imagine when you first decided, hey, I can tell a little bit more stories, that you would see those opportunities or get those gifts with this Instagram account? I don't think I had imagined this much success, but it was definitely what I wanted when I started it because, because of the nature of sneaker culture and how difficult it is to buy shoes now. I kind of thought there's got to be other ways to do this and get around all these obstacles. So I figured, why not just promote what I like? and see what happens. And if it gets big enough, I'm hoping Nike and Jordan brand will take notice. And they certainly have. So that's really fulfilling for me. And I feel like I've achieved everything I've wanted with the account. I was going to be happy with 5,000 followers. And obviously, it's gotten a lot bigger than that. So yeah, I'd consider it a success at this point. And it's just it's just fun now. Like it's, you know, I'm not getting paid. To, I'm still not getting paid to run it. So it's not, you know, I get paid to write articles on the side and things like that, but it's just fun. It's just still my hobby. So. And I feel that's something I've felt from following Nike stories for the past few years as there's a, a great balance where in the sneaker community, it feels like certain individuals are really trying hard to gatekeep, so to speak. And push out those new and up and comers as you know on your end I think you're providing information to those who have been in the game for a while and relate to a lot of those older stories or East Bay catalogs you post but it's also a great resource for newer people in the community to learn and I I really enjoy the variety of stories and it and from what I've seen too you've and mentioned is that you've created some real authentic friendships from this time and those experience are, are priceless as you move forward or may have never been in that position. So uh, I applaud you for, for the creating Nike stories and, and sticking with it. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of negative things about social media, obviously. There's a lot of great things too. The people I've been able to meet, both just through conversations on Instagram and actually meeting up in person. I guess I never realized how many like-minded people there were out there that had the same passion so it's really cool to see because, yeah, you don't realize how many people love the same shoes that you do unless you're actually posting them and getting the, the engagement and the likes. So that has been the really amazing thing about, about the account. And as you mentioned recently, you've transitioned to, to kind of take a break from the stories or the East Bay catalogs and older vintage related posts and transition to going through your collection, picking 50 of your favorite sneakers, not in any particular order, but in posting a photo of those sneakers. How has that process been for you? 
so I am currently furloughed, so I have a lot of time on my hands. I am married and I have a daughter who's four, so I have to spend a lot of time with her. However, this, this whole pandemic has given me a lot of time to just think about our lives and our situation and what's meaningful and, and what's not important. And I'm a minimalist at heart. So I, you know, Marie Kondo and the joyful art of tidying, I'm all in on that. I, I love trying to live simply and own and keep only things that bring you joy. But obviously, at the same time, I'm a sneakerhead at heart, too. And when you have a, a big collection, which if I had kept everything I ever owned, it would probably be about 200, 250. But for me, that's way too much. And, and every sneaker does honestly bring me joy. But I, I figured this would be a good time to downsize. And I do have some some friends who own maybe like 20 pairs and yet are in the sneaker seriously. And I thought, wow, that's that's really impressive that they can have that self-control. So I thought, all right, I've got some time. Let me let me go through my collection here, see what really brings me joy, what the grails really are and what can I get rid of? Also, because we're in a pandemic and could be going into a bad time financially, (laughs) uh, maybe I should start selling some of this stuff, especially because the sneaker market is hot right now. And people have all this money from their stimulus checks. Maybe I should start selling some of this stuff while I can. So that has kind of been the process. So it's kind of like me reflecting on my collection in front of everyone. Like you said, in no particular order, like I get out of bed, I look at my closet and I pick out a shoe that I want to talk about for the day. And I kind of just take it out and look at it all day and take a few pictures throughout the day in different lights and putting them on just having them on the table and i really do reflect on that pair and then and then talk about them and tell a story and as i'm sure you can see a lot of people share similar sentiment with each shoe about either regretting on missing out on it or they did have it and they they love the comfort or they hate the comfort i try to be you know very real about that as well like oh this shoe sucks but i love it because <laughs> the original was amazing uh, but the comfort now is terrible. So that has kind of been the whole thinking behind that. And I wasn't sure where it was going to go and what the reception would be and was hoping it wouldn't fall flat. And it, it certainly hasn't. <laughs> As someone who also has downsized their collection, I mean, I've done it over the past two or three years. You're doing it at a good pace. What is some of the obstacles or difficulties you found thus far and trying to downsize to to 50 sneakers so far it's been going okay so i don't think i've hit the tough part yet because i'm only at number 31 but so far it's still all shoes that i absolutely love i think it'll get trickier towards the end when there's sneakers that maybe nike or a designer sent to me and mm-hmm. at like number 47, 48. And it's like, oh man, this like this was a personal gift from someone. I really want to keep it, but it's not a grail. So it's not a shoe that I ever really wanted. It was a surprise. And I really do love it and appreciate it, but I'm never going to wear it. There's no reason for me to keep it. So at that point, I think it'll be a great opportunity for me to think of a creative and fun way to do something with that sneaker, maybe give it to someone, maybe do something on Instagram where I say, like, if you're a size 11 and you play tennis, DM me, the first person to DM me is going to get these shoes. <laughs> and that fun opportunities will will come out of this. Yeah, that's awesome. It sounds like 
you're going more for that intrinsic value and the value to you, which was something I went through too. I did the same thing as anything to me that connects a certain moment or memory in my life is always going to outvalue something that I may have picked up on a whim or the hype behind it because the end of the day to me when I look back I want to as you already are you're going wow I really enjoy this shoe I really enjoy wearing it even though it's not comfortable I remember this exact moment I was in with it or the the smile it brings to my face or others whatever it may be and so in that downsizing what has your wife's thoughts been on you downsizing is she supporting it is she neutral about it how has that conversation been she's absolutely supportive about it because she does ask me more than once a day, what are you doing with these shoes? Uh, <laughs> they're taking over the closet. And we live in a house, but it's an old house. We're in New Jersey. It's 100 years old, almost. And like the attic is super hot in the summertime. So, you know, I would store them up there, but the glue starts to melt off the shoes because it gets so hot right. in the attic. So I need to do something with them. So I really, even though we're in a house, I don't have anywhere good to store them anyway. So my wife is fully supportive of that decision. You love to hear it. And as you've gone through these sneakers, you've done a great variety. Some people get swayed to just Jordan or just Nike running or Nike basketball. But now as you're picking through the assortment in a plethora of shoes, do you think from your perspective and your time that Jordan, the player, will ever have someone rival his brand supremacy in the future? I mean, anything's possible. So it's a, yeah, that's a tough one to answer. I feel like Zion Williamson could do it mm. in different ways, but his health is just a big question mark. I don't know if he's going to be able to stay healthy and really perform at a high level for the number of years that Jordan did. It's hard, man, because Jordan just influenced people in so many ways, both on and off the court. He influenced clothing and sneakers and what you like Gatorade and, you know, you know so many different things. Chevy, you know, he was just the, the greatest marketer ever. So that's going to be hard to beat. So I don't know if in, my, if in our li- lifetimes there'll be anyone quite like Jordan. So I guess I'll leave it at that. <laughs> I think that's a fair assumption. And, you know, I never want to be the guy who tries to, to minimize a certain legacy. And I think for Jordan, this is no dig, is his timing was perfect, but he also backed it up superiorly to anyone who's done it. It was like first signature athlete to push this type of brand, backed it up with championship. But you also look into him to your point, Drew, is later in his life he retired. You he pushed the Haynes brand to where as a kid I was like, oh Jordan's wearing that. I want a Haynes white t shirt. It was just so, it's so magical in what Jordan has done from simply the game of basketball. Yeah, down to his hoop earring and, you know, basketball shorts and black socks with black shoes. Of course, the Fab Five did that first, but then doing it in the playoffs transcended, changed everything. So, yeah, I don't know if we're going to see anyone else like that anytime soon. And so to kind of wind down here, going to hit you with a couple quick fun yes or no either or questions and see what your responses are do you prefer high tops or low tops <laughs> oh man low tops do i have to explain why yeah if you, if you if you feel like you have an explanation go for it 
I mean, just they look better on me and they're just more versatile. So of course, runners, I work in New York, so I'm running everywhere. So running shoes are just better to wear on a day-to-day basis. 90s Nike basketball or current Nike basketball in terms of performance sneakers for you? Oh, I mean, current Nike basketball sneakers are definitely better because they're so much lighter and have figured out the cushioning and the padding so much better than the 90s. The 90s basketball shoes were so chunky and big and the Air Max bubbles were huge. So performance-wise, current Nike basketball is much better, but you can't deny the impact and power and influence of the 90s basketball sneakers. Little Penny or Mars Blackman? I'm going to say Little Penny just because Mars was a little before my time. I was That was late 80s into the early 90s. So I was eight, nine, 10 years old, whereas Lil Penny, I was in middle school into high school. So, and Chris Rock as Lil Penny was just hilarious. And the commercials were awesome. And the whole Penny Hardaway line is still actually underrated, I think. Um, I would agree. So yeah, I'm going with Lil Penny. Lil Penny was before my time, but when I go back on YouTube and see those videos, I, I fall in love with it. And to your point, I think the Penny line is a phenomenal line that unfortunately, you know, due to injuries and other things may have not got its, you know, its light, but it's something that does pop out. And the thing I'm happy for, it seems like a lot of outside of the foams uh, or the foam posits that they go to discount, which is nice for when you're being financially decisive on a sneaker. Usually when they bring out a penny sneaker, they usually do go on sale. So they have all that. They usually have Zoom Air and, and Air Max bubble. So those are the quintessential 90s cushioning technologies that you get with those shoes. Outside of Nike stories and a sneaker culture, what are you currently interested in, whether it's a book or entertainment or games or, you know, a hobby? Uh, what are something piquing your interest at the moment? <laughs> yeah. So as a furloughed dad, <laughs> my majority of my time is spent entertaining my daughter. So <laughs> that is what I do for the most part. And she is uh, quite a girly girl. So she loves princesses and dressing <laughs> up and playing with Barbies. And she's very bright and clever. She loves puzzles and all sorts of games. So we spend a lot of time playing dress up and playing with dolls and, and putting t- puzzles together. That is my life at the moment. And it has been for the last few months, um, which I think is it, it can be challenging because um, I love sports <laughs> and she right. so I, I try to get her to play basketball and tennis and things like that. And she's not too into that. She'll do it for a little bit, but not not that much. But I know looking back on this whole time, it's going to be a very uh, sweet time that I will definitely cherish to be able to spend this much time with my daughter. It's fantastic. Yeah, definitely a cherishable and priceless memory. And yay, she might not be into sports now, but things could change. So <laughs> knowing what you know now in regards to Nike stories and sneaker culture, is there anything you would have done differently at the start of your journey? Yeah, that's a really good question. I feel like I've tried to take advantage of every opportunity. So whenever somebody gives me a chance to write for them or I get invited to a sneaker event, 
I've tried to to do do it and do it well. So I can't really I can't really think of anything I would do differently. Again, it's just what I love. It's definitely work, but it's really fun work to be able to to, to keep coming up with new content. It can be challenging. Um, and then to do some of the articles I've written takes a lot of research, which takes time. So yeah, I can't think of anything I would do differently with the account. And I'm definitely glad I didn't sell it for $10,000. <laughs> That's for sure. And yeah, the I read the Air Jordan 1 guide on high snobiety that recently. That's a great article. I could tell the time and you know the passion behind it. It's always fun to read an article from someone who's actually invested in the sneaker community. And that brings me to, at this point in time, what is your favorite Nike-related story, whether it's from the past, whether it's from a simply just a story that Nike put you in a position to have this memory, or if it's something from your childhood, what's your favorite Nike-related story to share? Man, I have so many, and I was thinking about this too. <laughs> I've been able to meet some really great people through the account, so I would have to say it was recently it was meeting Zion Williamson when he was debuting the Air Jordan 34. Jumpman invited me to that event in Harlem last September. So it was a huge event, ton of people out. There was a basketball court. Uh, we knew they were going to debut the new 34. All the sneaker media people were there from New York and, and from around the country. So I saw a lot of familiar faces and we didn't know who was going to be there. So we, I had a feeling Zion was going to be there, but wasn't sure. And of course he came out and did those two amazing dunks that they over and over again. And I was, I was standing right there watching it and took some footage of it. Um, then he leaves. Then Jordan Brand escorts myself and about 10 to 12 other sneaker media people down to the New York headquarters to wear test the 34, which was thrilling. We're trying them on. We're, we're learning about them from Tate Kerbis, who helped lead designer on them, learning all this cool information. And then out comes Zion again. And it's only like 20 people there. Oh my God. And we're standing right next to him. And he's talking about the shoe himself and taking pictures. And then they say, okay, now we're going to go play and, and try out the shoes, test them out for yourself. And for myself, I have a few nagging injuries, so I wasn't going to participate playing. So I see Zion just standing there by himself. <laughs> you know, like LeBron has a massive entourage, even when he was straight out of uh, high school. I was just standing there by himself. So I'm like, I got to go say hi. <laughs> so I just walked right over. I'm like, Zion, name's Drew Hamill. You don't know, probably don't know what Nike story is. <laughs> it's uh, this Instagram account. And I'm, I write about shoes for a few websites and just think you're awesome. And I just wanted to say hello and shook his hand, got a few pictures with him. And he was super cool about it. And because of my account and Grateful for Jordan Brand for even allowing me to be there for that moment. Um, I got to meet Zion. Yeah, that's that's crazy, especially the part of just being able to to walk up to him and all because, as you mentioned, just from a simple social media app gave you the platform to share your knowledge and get you there. Well, Drew, I, I appreciate your time and, you know, the, the tip of the iceberg on stories. People aren't familiar with Nike Stories. How can they find you? So Nike Stories is about six years old now on Instagram. It's definitely an archive where you'll find some sneakers you might not have seen before. And I try to hashtag every shoe so that you can click on it and find other images of it. And it's just about sharing stories about these shoes. 
I allow people to share their stories as well through the comments. And I, I love seeing that because there's a lot of people out there that share the same interests as me. Right on. All of that information will be in the show notes below. Definitely have to check it out. There's guaranteed multiple stories or viewpoints that you'll learn right away. I appreciate your time, Drew, I, and I thank you for hopping on here. And I, I hope you continue to enjoy your, your time with your daughter for the time being and look forward to you know seeing Nike stories grow in the next few years. Thanks, Julian. I really appreciate it. And there you have it. Drew Hamill of Nike Stories. It was a great conversation. I love talking The Last Dance, a former Foot Locker employee like myself, and hearing about how he's genuinely grown his social presence to write for big name companies such as High Snobiety, Finish Line, etc., but also utilize it to leverage his enthusiasm and passion to meet the likes of Zion Williamson and other genuine sneakerheads across the country. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. All of his information, like I said, is in the show notes below. I do hope you go check it out, learn something new. And if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to rate it and subscribe, and I'll catch you next week.